0: This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the Pulitzer Prize-winning author Stephen Greenblatt about his new book, Tyrant, Shakespeare on Politics. Your marvelous book, Stephen, shows Shakespeare to be a more informed source on the day's events than the whole of our national news media. You look to Shakespeare's plays for what John Adams once called that most dreaded and envied kind of knowledge, I mean of the character and conduct of our rulers. Maybe you can begin with a few words about the reasons for your own methodology and then take us into some of the plays wherein you catch the conscience of the king.
1: First of all, thank you very much, Lewis, for having me. I wrote this book in part because I began to feel overwhelmed by the daily dose of disorienting news, by the peculiar sense that the assumptions that I had always held about our national character and about what was possible and not possible uh, were called into question, and I began to feel uh, significantly off balance. And in that situation, it was an enormous help to look away from the immediate circumstances, but not totally away, look instead at our circumstances from an oblique angle by looking back 400 years to arguably the greatest playwright of the last 2,000 years and one of the deepest thinkers of the last 2,000 years, what Shakespeare made of the political world that he, as he understood it, uh, as he lived in it.
0: And then you take the circumstances. I'm going to ask you to explore the character of the tyrant or of the deformed ruler in in, in Richard III, also in some, some of the Henry VI plays in Macbeth, and maybe also in Lear. But you start with, in, which in one of the plays is... Uh, where we are in our own commonwealth. Civil dissension is a viperous worm that gnaws the bowels of the commonwealth. <laughs> I don't know which one of the plays that comes from, but it, it, it's about the dividing
1: into uh, factions. Yes, it's from this very early play, one of his earliest, Henry VI, uh, part one, a uh, trilogy that he wrote early in his life about, in effect, the invention of... Uh, dysfunctional politics. Uh, Two parties that actually can no longer talk to each other, can no longer cooperate with a weak central ruler, and uh, therefore no uh, strong incentive to collaborate and instead spiral into deeper and more dysfunctional antipathy. And then out of that situation, Shakespeare sees the emergence of the tyrant and also saw the emergence of his own career because uh Shakespeare's great breakthrough play really was Richard III which grows directly out of these this early trilogy when he suddenly saw the character of this terrifying catastrophic ruler described
0: i mean Richard III appears as as, as what as what R- Richard of- Plantagenet or Gloucester, Gloucester or, or, yes. or Gloucester at the, in the end of the Henry VI plays and, and then there's that magnificent speech at the beginning uh, let, let's dwell at, at some length on, on, on Richard
1: III. So the, yes, the first thing to say and is Shakespeare's imagination caught fire really when he isolated in this early trilogy the figure of, of Gloucester, one of the sons of the aspiring York and imagined what it was like to be this character. And he uh, f- consumed with ambition, obsessed with himself, filled with a desire to achieve absolute power at all costs, and at the same time, extremely unlikely ever to get close to such power because he was a twisted, uh, physically and, and psychologically twisted person. And Shakespeare burrows into that Personality to try to understand how does such a person come to exist? What are his qualities, uh, and how does he make it in the world?
0: There's the opening speech. Do you remember any of that opening speech where where Richard III talks about impossible? Nobody loves him, and and he, yes. he's an ugly deformed dwarf, and and there's nothing in the world of peace for him. He has to depend on on uh,
1: violence and and. Uh, Shakespeare wrote that speech twice, in effect. He wrote it once in uh, Henry VI, then he wrote it a second time more famously at the beginning of Richard III, the famous speech that yeah. begins, now is the winter of our discontent, made right. glorious summer by the son of York, in which Richard reveals the uh, seething anger and loathing and also self-contempt. Uh, that he feels, everyone, dogs bark at me, I'll never get a woman, Every, I'm ugly, uh, everyone hates me, and the only thing I can do is to bully people, that's what I can do. And then the strange thing, Lewis, is that Shakespeare goes on very quickly in the play to show Richard getting a woman, so that it isn't what, the, the play begins by uh, inviting you to imagine that the pursuit of power is somehow compensation for not getting sex, but then, actually, that's not true. The compulsive desire for power is completely consistent with the misogynistic overpowering of other women, the grabbing of women, which he does. So there's an
0: echo in in, in this, uh, uh, not only of Donald Trump, but also in, uh, in, uh, of Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry to borrow, borrow a, a reference from the news, but nevertheless, it has that kind of an overtone.
1: Well, it is the case that Shakespeare thought that uh, there was something in the uh, psychosexual, if I can say that, the psychosexual life uh, of the tyrant that helped at least, helped you understand what the motive was, what the drive was that was leading in this direction. But the question then, Lewis, is are people fooled? Do they not see what's going on? Uh, Because after all, human beings uh, have self-interest, and it's not at least normally thought to be in the self-interest of most individuals or societies to have catastrophic leaders. So Shakespeare then asked himself repeatedly in Richard III, but also elsewhere, how is it possible for societies to fall into the hands of disastrous leaders? Why do people uh, go along with such things?
0: And you give—first of all, you, you, you point out that the, in the early part of the play, anyway, uh, the audience is prepared to laugh with, uh, as well as at, the preposterous figure of Richard III.
1: Yes, we take pleasure in it. We the, take the,
0: pleasure <laughs> in it in, in, in the same way that, that we took pleasure in, in the campaign of, of, of Trump.
1: Because even if you profess that you don't take pleasure in it, the continual— implication in Shakespeare at least, is that the aggression is something at the beginning at least that you can embrace secretly, that you can enjoy the transgression. You've had to keep it to yourself so long. You've had to restrain yourself. And then suddenly here you have a man who says, as Richard does when he's hiring murderers to kill his own brother, your eyes drop millstones, he says, when other men's fall tears. I like you lads. And we all laugh. I like you lads. He comes... He comes out with things that people don't normally say. Normal people. So now talk
0: about the the uh, the various ways that the decayed commonwealth, the the kind of people who enable the rise to power of 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 the tyrant, even though he's as outrageous a figure as Richard III. I I can give you the six that you listed. First, you, you, one,
1: are the genuinely fooled. But he thought that was a s- relatively small number. Yeah. Children, um, a handful of idiots who don't see at all what's going on. But there aren't many of those, he thought. Okay, then two, those who feel frightened. Yes, sometimes in the face of, of, of uh, an extremely aggressive and abusive personality, Shakespeare thought some people just fold, especially if the person... In Shakespeare's case, a person has felt entitled all his life so that, as Richard III does, he just orders people around as if he has the right to do so, and everyone basically shrugs, or not everyone, but a group of people who should resist, nonetheless, actually just fold. Three, those who cannot
0: keep in focus. Richard is as bad as he seems to be.
1: Well, Shakespeare thought that lots of people have the urge to forget or to normalize, Uh, they see that something terrible is happening, but it's easy for them, psychologically easy for them to forget it, because they want the situation to be what it always is. And they think, well, all right, this is a little strange, but finally, the normal will assert itself. I mean, that was the thinking, I think, in in
0: Germany in the early 30s that accompanied Adolf Hitler's rise to power. I mean, many of the grand and good bourgeois in in, uh, Germany thought that they could keep the man under control.
1: Yes, that that you trust that somehow the the ordinary decencies uh, will hold. And that the institutions will
0: continue to be honored and respected. Yes,
1: and that's, of course, a deep uh, quality that Shakespeare thought in... Societies that have, after all, no societies invented uh, overnight. There there are norms, there are institutions that have lasted a long time, and people tend to trust that those institutions will restrain the, the worst excesses. And suddenly the structure
0: proves unexpectedly fragile, and most unexpectedly to the
1: people of power and privilege who ought to know that it's fragile. Yes, that's true, but m- many of those people... Shakespeare thought constituted a, yet another category of enablers, those who think, well, we can take advantage of this. We can use this person uh, to our own advantage. And Shakespeare is uh, uh, unbelievably cunning and uh, cruel at dissecting people who think uh, that they'll be able to use this person, because very often they're the people uh, who are the first actually to go uh, when the system actually gets underway.
0: I mean, and you you have a chapter about that being a, a kind of the manipulation of populism by by
1: the oligarch. Shakespeare thought at the beginning it's an extreme version of it. I mean, at the in, in this early play, he gives you the the image of a strange character who's basically a tool of the the elite aspiring tyrant, but a, a lower class character, Jack Cade, his name is, who is a populist demagogue, and who spouts a lot of nonsense about everything will be on my, you can drink f- for nothing, you'll drink on my own tab, uh, the, the, I'll make it a felony to drink small beer. This is the famous scene in which someone uh, shouts, first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers, famous yeah. line in Shakespeare. Yeah. But the, the, uh, that figure is actually... Uh, who's organizing and uh, secretly organizing the, uh, riots on behalf of the of the elite upper class character is actually uh, able to trigger a kind of very powerful populist movement uh, that turns against education uh, that that uh, turns against the established order of things that how should we say releases in a lot of people a sense that they haven't been getting what they should be getting from the state.
0: And then what is the reaction of the audience? I mean, the, the, uh, I mean, we don't know we were not there in, <laughs> in, in the Globe Theater, but I mean, you suggest that the uh, something in us, the audience, enjoys every minute of the horrible ascent to power. But then when we have tyranny triumphant, and he's in power, and he's murdered everybody between himself and the throne. Uh,
1: the laughter begins to curdle. Yes, and I think that Shakespeare, has, it's a partly artistic uh, question, uh, a, a difficult task, having released this level of pleasure, aggressive, sadistic pleasure, uh, where you can identify with the bully. How do you turn that so that you can begin to, to produce a different effect on your audience, you can begin to make the audience feel that that they've gone too far or that the figure in this case has gone too far. And you can watch Shakespeare in uh, Richard III, but also in other plays of his, manipulating this moment, trying to calculate this moment at which you can r- awaken the crowd to what they've done, uh, to what they've been identifying with. And ultimately, I think... Toward the end of Shakespeare's career in a play that not that many people know, Coriolanus, he actually represents that moment as a political moment. How can you tell the voters, because that play uh, pivots around an election, how can you tell the voters that they're actually making a terrible mistake by uh, voting for someone uh, who actually is not on their side, however much they think he is? And his answer actually is strange, strange for a playwright. It's not heroism. It's ordinary procedural politics, insisting on the rules. That, in Coriolanus, is how the tyrant, the aspiring tyrant, is brought down.
0: Well, I I want to get back to that point a little later. But talk first about Shakespeare seeming to believe that the tyranny, once it comes to rule proves to be incompetent and and has a hard time of, of remaining in power i mean it never feels secure yes so talk about richard iii in power and then talk and then let's talk
1: something about macbeth i mean shakespeare thought that the remarkable skills uh, the ruthlessness the cunning the lying uh, the the relentless narcissism that got Richard Third, in that case, where he was, where he wound up at the very head of the state, would not translate uh, into effective rule. Uh, on the contrary, he had no plan to actually uh, benefit a kingdom. He had no ability to think through what uh, a coherent policy would be for the state. He just wasn't unbelievably good at... Uh, doing away with one enemy after another until he reached the top. But in that play, once he reaches the top, the whole tone of the play shifts. The character of the monarch shifts. Uh, he can't get any pleasure out of uh, this himself, and it begins to unravel. He begins to be tormented by inner doubts as well.
0: Yes, I mean you quote that wonderful speech. Do you remember the one where I think it's Macbeth talking? Uh, is it no? No, it's Richard the Third. What do I fear myself? There's none else by. Richard loves Richard. That is, I am I. Is there a murderer here? Yes, I am. So, I'm the so. Murderer, yes. Yeah, I'm the murderer, right? So, I mean, it's it's it's.
1: Yes, Shakespeare. I mean, it's not
0: the head that wears the crown is not easy.
1: No, and Shakespeare thinks that, in effect, Richard has been able to use his own. Psychological strangeness uh, is to turn it into his aspiring, bullying, grasping uh, climb to the throne. But that once he's there, when the process is over and he no longer is climbing, he actually is in effect turned back upon the strange qualities that brought him there in the first place, including the self-hatred that lies just on the other side of the narcissism and you see that again plainly in macbeth well you see in macbeth someone who's tormented by the very things that he does but who goes dead and in a curious way in macbeth you get the you get the shadows the other side of this you get someone who's before the act being instigated prodded by his wife before the act of murder that leads him to the throne he is incredibly sensitive to his own uh, moods, his fears, his, li- his desires. Once he gets into the position of power that his wife, at least, has aspired for, uh, for, for him to reach, he begins to go dead inside. He just becomes less and less connected to anything until at the end he says life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. It doesn't mean anything at the end. You,
0: you get the same sense of a nothing in in Lear in a different, somewhat different circumstance, because Lear, again, narcissism. But even when you know he's turned out into the cold and and uh, suddenly begins to have some sense of what other people live like, uh, yes,
1: he's still self-absorbed, right? That's true. I mean, he has glimpses, yeah. glimmerings of the fact that there was a life other than his own. There was a world of suffering other than his own suffering. But it's only transient, uh, and he keeps returning so that when he encounters someone who is miserable, he thinks that person must have had the same personal, the same history he has—disobedient, uh, uh, ungrateful daughters, and so forth. But what Lear feels, Lear has tried to separate his titles, his sense of grandeur and importance as uh, the king from actually any executive abilities whatsoever or responsibilities whatsoever, and he can't do it. So he's left feeling like, as the, as the fool says to him, an empty peapod. Uh, it's been yeah. emptied out. There's nothing in him. Nothing there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, of course, unbearable.
0: The thing that's so wonderful about um, about the plays, and certainly the, in the way that you show them to us, is, is that there are so many historical references. I mean, it's not only a, an elements that we see in, in Trump and Washington, but it's also, you know, Augustus taking over the Roman Empire, I mean, hollowing out the institutions for keeping the sham, surrounded by enablers, and Hitler the same way, and, also, what happens to the ancien regime in France? The the uh, I mean, it's
1: Shakespeare's a genius. You know, it's strange, Louis, because it's a it's a strange form of consolation if you're distressed by the world that you're living in. If you look around and you you uh, think about the creatures who are at work in the world now, and major starting, let's say, with Putin or with Orban or with Erdogan or with Duterte, and we could go on with the list. Yeah. It is a strange form of consolation to realize that uh, these are this is not the first time any of this has happened. No, uh, we're not alone, and we're not the first people to think about these issues. There have been no. uh, others before us, and it's a it's a disturbing, mordant form of consolation, but it is a form of consolation. No, to I think, think that it we is. Can a, go with yeah, someone else. No, no,
0: it's it's a real comfort. I mean, it, the, the world and time is is. Uh,
1: strengthening in us if if we can call upon it. And what Shakespeare does, or what is moving about Shakespeare is not only, as I say, there's a certain moment in his life in which he tries to think of solutions to this, including the solution of of, uh, procedural legal process, but there are also, there's the Shakespeare who thinks about what the moral position of people in difficult times should be. And he has a series of characters, Cordelia in uh, King Lear, uh, or Paulina in that late play, The Winter's Tale, who are willing to speak the truth. Or Kent and Lear, who, who, are, who say it, this cannot be, this is uh, unacceptable, who are willing to speak the truth to p- people in terrifying positions of power. They suffer for it often, but they're willing to. And Shakespeare's genius said actually focusing on, not simply on the miseries, but also on the heroism, often the heroism of, of small people. As well as uh, important people in his world that's a wonderful
0: point and it's it's you make it very clearly in in Lear when you're talking about the the servant who stands up to Cornwall.
1: Can you remember that scene or can I can I? remember it well I okay. mean, it, it, uh, the situation in Lear is that there is a legitimate ruler of the country, who's a very disagreeable character, but he is uh, the, uh, who, who, the Duke of Cornwall, who was the, the son-in-law of the king who has uh, abdicated. And that man, Cornwall, has received news of a treasonous conspiracy. And he decides that he will get the information that he needs by torturing the traitor. And he has the traitor, who was an old man, bound to a chair, And he begins the interrogation. And Shakespeare writes one of the most remarkable interrogation scenes because it sounds like it was written late last night. Why did you do this? Wherefore to Dover? Wherefore to Dover? Why did you send the old king to Dover? And so forth. And in the course of the interrogation, he begins to torture his prisoner in the most horrendous way, uh, tearing out his eye. And at that point, a voice... This is a world of people who are always surrounded with servants. A voice of a servant shouts out, hold your hand, my Lord. I have served you all my life, but never better service have I done you than I'm doing now to tell you to hold. And the servant comes forward, and it's his own servant, Cornwall's own servant, uh, who tells him to stop. He will not allow him to torture the prisoner because— this, Lewis, is a world in which uh, it must have astonished the audience because no one could call the, a ruler of this kind into question. And people expected rulers to tor- Back in that barbarous world, people expected governments to torture their prisoners, unlike our own time. And at that point, Cornwall says, how now, you dog? Uh, and there, in, there follows a fight at the end of which the servant whose name we never learn is killed but not before the servant actually manages to deal a fatal blow to the torturer. It's one of the most astonishing moments in Shakespeare in which a, a nobody, literally a nobody, uh, comes forward and says, I won't allow you to do this. It, that's, that's,
0: it's marvelous. And, and that, again, is Shakespeare believing in, in the basic uh, fundamental spirit of humanity Uh, that will endure and prevail. It
1: takes a while. It takes a while. And it it may bring lots of suffering before it prevails, but I think he did think it would prevail. And in fact, at the end of this remarkable scene, one of the strangest and most wonderful scenes Shakespeare ever wrote, the tortured man who's been blinded at that point, both eyes, is on the stage and two other servants come forward who've been cowering in, in the shadows afraid to come forward, but they come forward now and they bring uh some medicine uh to bind up the poor man's wounds, and they actually save him by sending him away accompanied. And it's it's not much, Lewis. It's not a huge grand scene, but it's enough, Shakespeare thought. Enough to remind one that there is a world outside the world of these monsters world of ordinary people who actually have ethical lives.
0: But that act is it, in the face of, of uh, one of the truly most terrifying lines in all of Shakespeare's plays, where Cornwell says to the servants of the blinded man, go and thrust him out at gates and let him smell his way to Dover. Yes. Uh, You've written a magnificent book, Stephen. You really have. I mean, you always do. Thank you. But there's more piss and moment in in this book than, than, uh, as I said before, in in most all of the news media. So Thank thank you very much for coming to talk to us today about Tyrant Shakespeare on Politics by Stephen Greenblatt.
1: Thank you very much, Lewis.
0: Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.